Welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. This episode, we'll go deeper into the lawsuit filed Friday by nonprofit advocacy group Bike Loud PDX against the city of Portland. The suit alleges that the city has failed to comply with what's known as the Oregon Bicycle Bill, a law signed in 1971 that requires road authorities to include bicycle and pedestrian facilities with every major road project. To help us learn about the law and the lawsuit itself, I spoke to Scott Kotcher, an Oregon lawyer with Forum Law Group, who's an expert on biking and walking law. A few hours before we sat down in the Bike Portland shed to record this conversation, Kotcher joined Bike Cloud at the corner of Southeast Powell Boulevard and 26th Avenue, where Sarah Pliner died in a collision with a truck on October 4th. After a brief rally, Kotcher and Bike Cloud supporters rode together to the Multnomah County Courthouse in downtown Portland to file the lawsuit. Kotcher's name might be familiar to Bike Portland readers because he's written articles for us in the past, and he's been closely involved in traffic safety advocacy issues for many years, in part through his work as a board member of the nonprofit Oregon Walks. You might also recall that it was Kotcher and his legal team that published the landmark Oregon Walks Fatal Pedestrian Crash Report in 2021. I also want to say that Kotcher and Forum Law Group have been a financial supporter of Bike Portland for several years. Here's our conversation. Scott Kotcher, welcome into the Bike Portland Shed. Uh, thanks for uh, stopping by. I know it wasn't on your way to anywhere, so I appreciate you making the trek up the hill. Great to be here. You came over so we could talk about the lawsuit that you filed just a couple hours ago for Bike Loud PDX. The 250 members of Bike Loud are sort of technically the the plaintiffs on this. Can you share with folks a little bit why you, Scott Kotcher, sort of is a lead counsel and what what your role is or what your sort of background is? I'm only listed first on the complaint as counsel because I started on this project first. I am co-counsel. I'm delighted to say that I'm co-counsel with Thomas Kuhn, Newton & Frost, which is Portland's oldest bicycle law firm. Uh, Ray Thomas goes back a whole generation. He really, um, for decades, has been the bike lawyer and now the senior bike lawyer for our city. And uh, it's a real privilege to get to work with his firm on this case. They're going to be co-equals. And that's a huge announcement today, actually, that um, that we're going to shoulder this together. Um, for me, working on this case goes back several years um, because for a long time, we've all, I think, been aware that the, quote, bike bill was on the books. Um, it should properly be called the pedestrian and bicycle bill. It's in the Oregon Revised Statutes at 366.514, and it's been sitting there for 51 years. Um, and over the years, I know you, Jonathan, also have had conversations about, okay, well, there's this law. What does it mean? Uh, what good is it? It looks on its face like it should do us some good, and we know from Going back to 1995 when the Bicycle Transportation Alliance sued the city of Portland around the time that they were building out the streets around what is now Moda Center, the Rose Quarter, um, Portland wasn't going to build bike lanes on the major streets that they were putting in there. And the messaging to, uh, at the time, Rex Burkholder uh, was, well, you all don't want to ride bikes on the big streets anyway, do you? You'd, you'd be safer and more comfortable on the quiet side streets. Um, you can read about this in an article that Rex uh, posted on Huffington Post. If you Google um, the Portland bike revolution began with a, law a lawsuit, 
uh, by Rex Burkholder. Um, and he describes that history, which, which is before my time. Um, but he uh, describes saying, no, actually, bikes belong everywhere. And that was really a lot of foresight. I want to just, if you could back up a bit and, and just tell folks what your general understanding is of the bike bill, the 1971 bill that's in Oregon statute, what is your understanding of what it is? Yeah, great question. The pedestrian and bicycle bill says that whenever streets in Oregon are constructed, reconstructed, or relocated, that you have to have pedestrian and bicycle facilities. There are some exceptions if it would be, you know, impossible to to provide a facility or unsafe to provide a facility. There are some exceptions for that. Um, and so that's the basic requirement. Well, the other big thing in there, right, is that they must spend a minimum of 1% of the money on bicycle and pedestrian stuff. Okay, so that's what the bike bill is. It's always been there. It's sort of, if for folks that aren't from uh, Portland or Oregon, it's sort of our complete streets policy. A lot of a lot of uh, states and counties or whatever now have like a complete streets policy. But I think sort of since we had this bike bill, there was never a big impetus in Oregon to have a complete streets policy passed. So this kind of act says that. That may help folks understand it. But I wonder why you think using the bike bill tool uh, as a way to get stuff built is good. I mean, it, it's a relatively clunky piece of legislation written by people that weren't necessarily transportation experts or engineers or like, you know, what we'd think of as like urbanists today or something. These are folks, I mean, Don Stathos, right, the the Southern Oregon legislator who who really was the, the spearhead of it. It was one of those classic things where he, he couldn't he, – he was riding in gravel or something with his granddaughter and just thought it was absurd that in America, the richest country in the world, we couldn't have better bike lanes or something. Like that led to the bike bill, right? So it, it didn't have these like wonky beginnings, right? So it's not a very sophisticated piece of legislation. So I wonder why today in 2022 you think it's a good tool to get cities to act. It makes a lot of sense that if you're going to be building a street – from scratch, which actually still happens in Portland sometimes, or if you're going to be reconstructing that street, that that's a good time to put in what might have been missing uh, and to have to build a complete street. So there's a certain logic to it. Um, so yes, it's 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 simple. Um, it's not very nuanced, but there's a logic to it. And um, the challenge 50 years later is that we have a bike plan now in Portland. Uh, we have an idea of building a connected network. You don't get that if all you're doing is focusing on the locations that are being constructed or reconstructed. Those locations aren't necessarily the network's highest priorities for, for building out pedestrian and bicycle facilities. So it's, it's, a, it's a simple law. It's a little bit of a blunt instrument. Um, and, and, but there is an underlying logic for it. And it's there, right? I mean, it's in the Oregon statutes, which it's really the only thing we have, right? If you're going to try to force a, a municipality or government agency to comply, you basically need it. Cause we could pass all the plans we want, which we have done. Those aren't enforceable under the law. It's really hard to find things that are enforceable by law, right? In statute that actually say, Hey, build Build bike lanes, build sidewalks, right? And I would add to that, yeah. Jonathan. The, the closest analogy is probably the ADA. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, actually. Yeah. So 
how is it similar or different than the ADA lawsuit, which I'm sure a lot of folks listening to this already know about, which essentially was this massive civil rights suit from the 70s? So ADA goes back decades, and it's a federal law, not state of Oregon. Right. But it requires the public infrastructure to accommodate people using mobility devices, and that's fundamental. It's taken decades to get that implemented. In fact, both ODOT and the Portland Bureau of Transportation have been the defendant in lawsuits that were the impetus for the construction of um, of curb ramps and, and push buttons throughout the the network and, and they're still working on getting those built like they are you see yeah. them around portland i mean it's still an ongoing challenge for them to meet that it is but and they take it very seriously they are now that they've been sued and they're required to by law uh if you go back to the decades before that lawsuit the construction of curb ramps was not a priority and if you had gone to peabot and said hey um you know i think we should build 1500 curb ramps a year they would have said yes we'd love to do that and that would have been the end of the discussion. So there is a a part of the pedestrian and bicycle bill that is similar where it it's a law that says, hey, wait, you can't ignore this. You can't just say, hey, you know what, we're busy with other things. So I think part of the reason why these uh, government bodies have not been, you know, meeting the law, you could argue is because the law itself is so vague, right? It's got it's it's written in a way that has several pretty significant uh, lines in it that talk about exceptions, basically, that say, um, yes, the top line thing is anytime you reconstruct, realign, whatever, a road, you've got you've to do bicycle and pedestrian facilities. You've got to spend that minimum 1%. Um, but then there's also those lines below that that are all about uh, reasons why you don't have to, sort of wiggle room, weasel words, or whatever you want to call them. I wonder what you think about people that would say or arguments from uh, cities or, or counties or the state or whatever that say, you know, look, there's a lot of leeway in the law. We're just, we're just choosing to, you know, take advantage of those exceptions. So if a city or the state is relying on an exception, they have a duty to say that they're doing that and explain why the exception applies. They can't just come along later and say, oh, well, we're sure that there was some reason that we didn't do that. Uh, here, in the context of Portland, the most obvious exception that you would probably look at if you're reading the statute is other available ways. Well, gosh, you don't have to build bicycle facilities if there are other available ways. Okay, I want to I pin you on that, like other available ways. That's the quote from the bill, the law. So it's basically saying, look, you don't have to do this stuff if there are, quote, other available ways, which are basically saying if there's an alternate route, right, just to help folks understand. But that's qualified. You can only rely on that exception if the other available ways means that there's an absence of any need, any need for the bike facility on the roadway in question. So Southeast Division is an example that comes to mind. Um, they completely, the city of Portland completely redid uh, inner Southeast Division not too many years ago. And, you know, a few blocks south, you've got Clinton, which by now is a pretty decent bike facility. It serves most people fairly well. Uh, is that a substitute for being able to access businesses directly on division? Um, if you're going to rely on 
another available way. How good does it have to be? How well does it have to provide access? Um, so these are questions that have not been addressed because the law has only ever been used once, and that was back in 1995, and it was very limited. That's really fascinating to me. It's so really – I was going to ask, like, as far as legal challenges or whatever the word would be in your world, like the the precedent or the case history, uh, is the 1995 – Bicycle Transportation Alliance suit, is that the only one that's really tried to get at this? Yes. Wow. So there, so I, I would feel like there are just a ton of unanswered questions because the other available ways thing I think is going to be pretty massive in terms of an exception. Is there, I mean, I, I personally don't think a neighborhood greenway is a, should be considered a substitute. Um, I there was a, there was a commenter on Bike Portland on one of our recent stories about this who let's just say I know is a good source and knows what they're talking about. And they said that that other available ways things already been basically litigated, that it's okay to say a neighborhood greenway is a good alternate, let's say on something like division or Hawthorne and versus salmon or, or whatever, you know, Lincoln Harrison. Is that true? Does do you think the city of Portland is operating from a position of saying we have our neighborhood greenway network, so we're fine. Uh, I don't think that flies. And the reason I don't think that flies is that that was exactly the issue that was litigated in the BTA versus City of Portland suit around the Rose Quarter or the the Blazers Stadium in the 90s. Because, again, that's what they said back then is, well, you know, you people on bikes belong on the small streets. We shouldn't have to provide facilities on, on arterials or other big streets. The Court of Appeals said, no, actually, you you can bring a claim for that. Uh, so uh, I I don't agree that that's a done deal, and I don't believe that that's good policy either. I think that if you're uh, a, a delivery rider and you're picking up food orders at a restaurant on Division and you're trying to get it across town or you're picking up orders on Hawthorne at a restaurant and trying to get it across town, it's not a substitute to say, okay, well, I'm going to zigzag back and forth two blocks over to access businesses. So you see people riding bikes on Division or Hawthorne or these other big streets in Portland that don't have bike facilities all the time. Uh, there's certainly a need from a legal standpoint to say that there's an absence of any need is a very difficult argument. And so let's go through some of the other exceptions. Um, there's one in there that says, um, well, we talked about need, but I guess that's part of the argument that's going to happen, whether or not it's needed or not. But that's like that's like that classic maxim that you'll hear urbanists talk about that says like we don't decide if we're going to build a bridge by judging how many people are swimming in, across the river, right? Uh, so that one I think is pretty easy to argue against. Isn't there one in there about funding if it's just cost too much? Or, or did I read that wrong? What's yeah. the funding one that they could say, hey, this is just not possible? Like, so what's the funding exception? It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. You could imagine a, a roadway that passes along a cliff, and to provide a bike facility, you would have to mm. – literally dynamite the cliff and it would cost billions of dollars. Okay. I think that's probably what the legislature had in mind there. If it's right. cost prohibitive to build the facility for some reason, you don't have to do it. It's hard to imagine in the context of Portland where this lawsuit is located that you could rely on that. There's very little geography uh, that would make it cost prohibitive to provide a bike facility. You may have to reallocate from other uses. We have a lot of our city 
that's dedicated to turn lanes or duplicative lanes for cars. We're still recovering from the post-war transformation of our street grid into something that was designed to try to move as many cars as possible, as fast as possible, and we're paying the price of that in in the neighborhoods right now. Um, So that transition is going to have some growing pains, but you can't say that it's cost prohibitive. It's just, you know, inertia. Hmm. So, so you're, you're, you're pretty confident that the exceptions, even, even the way the, the text of the law is written, you're pretty confident that the city of Portland, in this case, again, this bill and statute applies statewide, which we can talk about in a sec, but for this, for the purposes of this case, this suit is talking just about the city of Portland. So, um, you're confident that they're not going to be able to argue about those exceptions. I'll be interested to see what they argue. When the city of Portland was sued for the ADA litigation, their approach was basically, look, yeah, we know we have this legal obligation. We know we haven't been meeting it. Uh, We would like to reach a resolution that puts us on a timeline that holds us accountable to get this job done. Uh, It is a choice to say, hey, 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 guess what? We're going to really try to squeeze as much as we can out of these exceptions or we're going to try to get a ruling from the court that that tries to make those exceptions swallow the rule or we're going to really to do backflips to try to avoid providing these facilities even though they're needed for safety and for access Um, that's a choice they would make and i frankly don't know how they're going to handle this it depends a lot on leadership and and vision um so um that's a chapter yet to be written. Yeah, and and boy, I think if they were to make that choice to try to say to argue against it, it's it's not going to look it's not going to look very good for them for a city that's ostensibly bicycle friendly and has all these great plans. So, but that kind of um reminds me of something else when you were talking about how how they might respond. So, in terms of a uh, the things you're hoping to get out of the lawsuit, leave it open to the possibility that there could that there could be a back and forth where the city says, "Hey, we know we didn't put protected bike lanes on Sandy Boulevard back whenever in the eighties, when we put that in, um, we're not quite ready to do that today, but here's something else we can do instead. Is this, does this, uh, sound good to you? So can you tell me how that might work in terms of like, could there be this back and forth or negotiation or what are, you know, how, how could the outcome piece of this play out if it got to that point? This is a learning process for everyone because we're on, new ground. One thing we know is that the locations, and we have our initial identified list in the lawsuit that we filed today, if you read that list of locations, they're not necessarily anybody's number one priority for where you would build the next piece of sidewalk or or bicycle facility. The priority tends to be on connectivity. The law allows in some cases, and certainly through a a settlement agreement in a case, there's a fair amount of leeway to say, well, you know what? Some of these facilities that were constructed in the past would be particularly difficult to change, maybe you know, bordering on impossible to change. I don't have an example, but suppose that were the case. You would say, well, gee, how can you make up for the past noncompliance? What's the best way to make up? for that past noncompliance. And the 2030 bike plan reflects years of thought 
to address essentially exactly that question. So we won't have to start from scratch if we're in the territory of saying, okay, we realize that we haven't done everything that we needed to do. How do we move forward? We have a really good blueprint for that in the form of the 2030 bike plan um, for the city of Portland, which is a great document and a great blueprint. Yeah, and I noticed it's actually specified in the in the lawsuit that that's a direction that the city could could go. So you're sort of encouraging, you're offering that up. Yeah, and as, you as, see this in other cases. You know, if there's a a corporation that cheats a bunch of people and and you can't find them, well, maybe the corporation would donate money to a a nonprofit that seeks to help those sorts of people that have been defrauded, but you can't help them specifically. So it, there's a notion of doing the next best thing that actually is in law and is available if people can reach that sort of agreement. So there's there's certainly um, opportunity for positive outcomes here. Um, yeah. And sorry, I'm going to jump around a little bit, but there's something else I wanted to get to about, um, you know, if if the city decided to not build the the right bicycle or pedestrian facilities that that you would think that the bike bill should would require you you mentioned something about how they should at least have to explain themselves essentially right it's on odot's flow chart so odot Oregon Department of Transportation has discussed this i think a lot more than the city of portland which is interesting um probably cuz they've been the focus of more legal issues around it or for whatever reason maybe they have a bigger staff they've actually devoted to defending the way they approach the bike bill and so if you, if you go on google and check it out you can find this really interesting flow chart that they have about the bike bill and how to approach it it's essentially made it's a, it's a flow chart essentially for their staff i think to try to determine you know if if a project needs to have it as per the bike bill or not blah 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 but one of the things that they say on that on that piece of paper is, quote, exceptions must be well-documented, right? So I think that's pretty powerful. And I've followed the city of Portland pretty closely in terms of transportation for the last 17 years. I've never come across a piece of paper or any kind of explanatory anything about why a bike bill wasn't, why the bike bill wasn't followed. Um, I've heard it, I've heard people talk about it in passing, but never anything that's like documented. And when how Hagedorn, who's who wrote uh, this amazing capstone project master's thesis, right, up at Portland State University. She's a one of the leaders of the Transportation Research and Education Center. Really amazing source on uh, sort of expert on the bike bill. Uh, through the process of learning about her work and trying to get ODOT on record about some stuff, I got a bunch of really interesting documentation from ODOT. They they have quite a bit of staff time and labor involved in tracking whether or not they're meeting it. I've seen the spreadsheets. It's got dozens of tabs, and there's a lot of work that's gone into that. I haven't seen that at the city of Portland. Are you aware of anything that they have that actually shows that they're documenting their excuses for not following the bike bill specifically? We asked for those documents and others in public records requests in January and March of 2020. Um, and we act- they actually directed us to city archives. A colleague and I went down to city archives and we tried – we said, hey, here's our, here's our requests. We were sent down here. We got nothing. <laughs> okay. So that's so, what that request was for. Okay, that's good to yeah. know. I was going to ask about that. That request was to, to say, show us your receipts essentially. Exactly. And it, it, it was – fairly comprehensive there were other parts to it but uh we got nothing Hmm. and that's disappointing when you make a public records request on behalf of an organization like bike loud other organizations that are nonprofits working in the public interest and you walk away from those requests either with 
an outright refusal or an indication that before they'll even start the research, you'll have to send them several thousand dollars hmm. uh, because they've denied your public interest fee waiver request, it, it leaves a bad impression. And it can sometimes lead to litigation. Uh, the city has been, frankly, hammered for that kind of conduct in some recent public records decisions in the courts. Um, so we we don't have documents to to be able to tell you or anybody in Portland or the public uh, about this. I do think that you've been doing this advocacy long enough. I've been involved uh, for enough years. If the city had documents that related to their decision-making around bicycle bill compliance or pedestrian and bicycle bill compliance, you would know about that and I would know about that. Uh, and if we get those in our first rounds of documents in this case, uh, you know, this is a public type of case, I, I'll, you'll be the first to get them. <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that brings up an important point for folks to realize that if the case is allowed to move forward, right, the first thing the city's probably going to do is motion to dismiss. But if it moves forward... There will be a discovery phase initially, which would essentially mean they would be compelled to uh, provide some of this documentation. So that's something to watch out for. But but also on the on that on this same note, I just want to underline for folks that like this is a statewide law, and if the city of Portland is not documenting any of this or tracking it, there are dozens and dozens of other municipalities across Oregon that I'm just going to say right now are not doing any documentation about this. They're just telling their constituents, their people, sorry, we couldn't do this bike lane. Sorry, we're not going to have this kind of facility here because it's just, oh, this is a big highway road for whatever excuse, right? But I guarantee they're not documenting documenting it either, which kind of brings up the other thing about how this could have ripple effects statewide and it could, could help, I'm hoping, other advocates or other people, even bureaucrats, city staff people in other places go, hey, you know, so we should be complying with this thing. So that that would be, I think, a great, a great outcome. Yeah, and to be clear, documentation for its own sake isn't necessarily helpful. But when you have to document something and you have to look at a checklist that says, "Hey, have we considered this and this and this?" And by the way, we have these obligations. It's harder to ignore obligations when you have those policies and procedures in place. And it's also it would be educational. I think a big part of this is, I'm. My hunch is a big part of the reason that we're sitting here talking about this and this lawsuit is filed because of sort of frustration by advocates that there's just a lot of gray area. There's a lot of opacity in this. People don't know. And if we had some kind of documentation or record or something that we could learn from and say, oh, okay, so that's how you're interpreting the bike bill. Hmm, that's interesting. Maybe we're going to go to the legislature as advocates and, and maybe amend the language a little bit so that it applies more or less or can work better for the community, because I loved, I loved what Bike Loud uh, Chair Kyle Johnson said today at, at the event uh, to to file the suit, where he said basically, what what's what good is a law if you know no one even knows it's there, or you know it's pretty meaningless if if no one knows how it works, or and I think that's the bike bill's kind of been like that. It, and on one hand, it's powerful, and we love to know that it's there, but on the other hand, it's kind of just been gathering dust for in some ways. Yeah, so. and it may need updates. Uh, True. I, I believe well, it's a good law. I think it's important. Uh, you know, the Street Trust tried in 2021, the 50th anniversary, to make some changes to it, kind of bring it up to date, hopefully expand its scope, um, more funding, all of these good things. Uh, it didn't happen, unfortunately. Um, but it may be that with some close examination and people actually trying to use the law that we'll learn how to make the law better. 
and that's how public policy ought to work. Yeah, and is there any? Do you have any concerns that just by opening this up, it could become weaker? And I know that's been that has been a concern <laughs> that you know if you go to fight for something and you don't get it, it could end up weakening in overall, or that in this case. If you have a judge who's not nice or uh, a judge wants to interpret it and actually be have more sympathy for cities in this case and say, that's eh, just too onerous. Like, uh, we got to we gotta clean that law up so we don't get in this pickle again and have these pesky people asking for a bunch of bike stuff. So is that a concern at all, or can you speak to that? In this context, I think that a resolution that is so far out of line with reality is is so improbable that it's not something that would give people pause and shouldn't give people pause on either side. Uh, you know, people always used to talk about the McDonald's coffee case as an example of, okay, the court system's broken, litigation out of control, whatever it is. Um, the reality is that 99.9% .9 of cases reach reasonable resolutions, and the justice system in our country is still the best in the world. Uh, certainly we have problems, um, you know, I, I, we could talk about that, but uh, I don't have a lot of concern that uh, that a fabulously you know successful outcome of this lawsuit would somehow lead to an unintended negative result. I do think that if that, that a, a, a you know if the, if the motion to dismiss were granted, depending on the grounds, that could be a bummer, and you'd say, well, gee, depending on what those grounds were, that could be precedent setting. Setting it could make future suits more difficult. Nobody's done one since 1995, <laughs> so yeah. it's not clear that we're necessarily closing a door that a lot of other people were looking at. Right. Okay, yeah, I hear you. If, 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 if the city of Portland comes up, if their lawyers come up with something that's just so brilliant and just gets it dismissed right away, then, yeah, the takeaway could be uh, you better not talk up about the bike bill anymore because it's, it's going to get dismissed. It's not an avenue that's available to advocates. Door is closed. Hmm. If that were the result, then it would be interesting because that's not what the Court of Appeals said in 1995, right. and this case is modeled quite closely on that, and it follows guidance from the Court of Appeals for what is a valid claim. So the, for a judge to dismiss this at the motion to dismiss stage, you know, obviously I, I, I won't comment on what a judge might do, but mm -hmm. there certainly is a strong legal basis for this case. Okay. Can we zero in on... I guess just one, maybe two. The one thing in the list of locations I thought was interesting is how you talk about the Pearl District. I just want people, I think some people are, are hearing about this suit and think, um, oh, there was this one project and they didn't put a bike lane in. And okay, you can kind of conceptualize, oh, it was a street project. We didn't get, we didn't get bike lanes. Okay, they're, they're, they want the bike lanes to go in. I get that. But tell me what your thinking is about um, the Pearl District, former, uh, uh, formerly very heavily industrial decades ago totally gentrified and redeveloped with condos. And now there's like this really nice grid of streets. Um, but tell me why that is one of the locations that you've listed. Because we don't have public records from the city to give us guidance, we had to rely on things like historic aerial photos. So you can see in historic aerial photos where parts of the city over the last 50 years have transformed from not a gridded neighborhood to brand new streets. So that would be construction of streets, and that is a situation where the bike bill applies. The pedestrian and bicycle infrastructure has to be provided. So um, it jumps out 
because the Hoyt Yards area of the Pearl District is, I don't know, 25 square blocks of the Pearl District north of Lovejoy uh, that used to be a train yard. And now it's, uh, you know, like you said, condos and, and businesses, uh, full, complete street grid. Uh, there are no bicycle facilities anywhere in that area. And the pedestrian and bicycle bill says there should be. Um, ridership in northwest Portland, despite having terrific density, is really low. And, uh, you know, I know when I'm riding with children, for example, through northwest Portland, you're in the street with cars. And some of those streets are nice, quiet streets. Many of them are not. And it just takes one or two drivers going super fast close by you to make you feel unsafe. So one of the very interesting questions is how did the city decide to build that large area of essentially brand new city from scratch without any bike facilities, number one? And number two, if you're trying to fix that, what does that look like? And those are questions that uh, have implications every day in terms of the quality of life in those parts of town, the priorities that, you know, have been kind of taken for granted there. And can I assume that a shared lane marking on a road in your mind does not qualify as a bike facility or, or what do you think about that? And I know this is just kind of like a quick personal question that I would love to know an answer to. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give you a slight, a shero for folks that, you know, I say shared yeah. lane marking also known as sharrows, you know, they, they, they've put down hundreds of those uh, in, in the Pearl district. Are those, do those qualify as resolving, you know, compliance? By themselves, absolutely not. The Portland, uh, the city of Portland has standards for traffic volume and traffic speed. Uh, and if you have too many cars or they're going too fast, it doesn't meet standards for a greenway. Um, when I served on the Northwest in Motion um, Policy Advisory Committee a few years ago, um, as of that time, not a single greenway in the entirety of Northwest Portland met those standards. So essentially, they're you know look at the map, you'd say, oh, that's great, Northwest Portland has greenways everywhere. Not a single one met standards because there are too many cars and they're going too fast. Um, uh, there have been a few di- new diverter- diverters put in place in uh, in that quadrant of the city, and uh, that has gotten volumes down on some streets. But uh, the point is, no, absolutely not. A Shero is not by itself a bicycle facility, and I don't think anybody could argue that it is. There is an interesting question about, in 2022, what is an appropriate bicycle facility on an arterial or a collector or a smaller neighborhood street? And those appropriate facilities may differ based on how big the street is. Um, but um, just slapping down a shadow isn't enough. And <laughs> I, I think uh, I think we would have the upper hand if the city tried to say, we put some shadows down, we're done. I want to talk a little bit about the Hawthorne Project, just because I think it's one of those classic situations that the bike bill, there's some debate on whether or not the bike bill should have been triggered. So let's say let's say the suit is a success and there's a stronger adherence or understanding about when it's triggered and that we redid the Hawthorne thing, just clean slate. I, I would assume you would say that there's a good chance the city might have acted differently. So for your listeners who may not know, the background on Hawthorne was that uh, Hawthorne was substantially redone uh, just a couple of years ago. It was on the the city uh, 
bicycle plan and the citywide transportation system plan as a key bikeway corridor. It was supposed to have world-class bicycle facilities, and there were plans that were put forward that included those. And then kind of at the last minute, uh, uh, city leadership very abruptly changed course. And um, there was some indication that um, bicycle, uh, that, that transit throughput times were the overriding consideration and that uh, if they had added bicycle lanes that it might have slowed buses down a little bit. Um, I forget if you, you may remember, was it was a couple minutes across the length of the corridor. Uh, and because those decision makers at that particular point in time really wanted to prioritize transit speed and there was actually I think some indication that they were even unaware certain decision makers were unaware that there was a bicycle plan and that that was a key connector for the bicycle plan uh, the project was done without bicycle lanes uh, so that's the background on that and it's an open question as to how the bicycle bill applies there there has not been clear guidance from a court of jurisdiction to say yes or no on a project like that. Uh, there's there, there are a lot of reasons why that project gets into reconstruction territory rather than just a repave, and that's something that we're prepared to talk about in the case. There's another aspect to this that I think is going to be a big part of the discussions in this case, which is what is the definition of reconstruct, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Are there some misconceptions people have about uh, when it's triggered in terms of reconstruction, whether or not you can just repave, how deep the repavement has to go to trigger the bill? What can you say about that? If there are misconceptions, it's not it's not their fault. Uh, the best guidance we have on that is uh, the ODOT interpretation, and that's the only guidance that we have really, um, and it's uh, on the PBOT website. You can Google PBOT bicycle bill and you can search through that long page for reconstruct. And the gist of it is that if you're just repaving the asphalt uh, or restriping the, the existing um, lane lines, that doesn't count as reconstruction. But if you're doing more than that, then you may be getting into reconstruction territory. And uh, we know that if you're doing uh, a dig all the way down to the dirt, then certainly you're in reconstruction territory. Um, I think the Hawthorne yeah, that's what I was thinking debacle, if you will. I think that's probably uh, a really good example of the of the issue because Peabot called that pave and paint, but they moved an awful lot of curb there. They put in a lot of islands. They reconfigured the lanes. There's a lot of things that happened in that project that were not just paving or replacing stripes that had faded. Uh, and uh, we take the position in this case that that actually triggers the bicycle bill and that um, pedestrian and bicycle facilities were required as part of that project. Um, the guidance that we have is certainly consistent with our position, um, but we don't have anything binding from a court with authority to flesh out that uh, that question. Uh, it comes down to probably a factual question that has to be decided by a court, and that's never happened before. So what happens now? What should the community expect in terms of just the the machine of 
of the system in terms of dealing with this suit uh, from here on out? What, what should folks expect are the next steps for this? Well, uh, there's always some legal wrangling at the outset, and I won't go into those details. Uh, one thing that I want to ask people listening to this podcast to do, especially if you're in Portland, if you know Portland streets really well, there's a saying that you may not have a PhD in, in traffic engineering, but you have a PhD in your neighborhood. I want folks who are listening to think about their neighborhood, think about streets that have been constructed since 1971 or reconstructed, really you know, changed, not just repaved, but actually changed since 1971, which is going pretty far back. So some of your older listeners may be extra helpful to us here. Uh, and uh, I don't know if there's a comments section or if, you can, if they can put them on Bike Portland or send them to me. Um, Scott at forumlawgroup.com is my email. But we'd like to expand our list. Uh, the research that we did, we know it was limited, uh, and we have our initial list of locations, but we need to expand that list. So one thing that the community can do to help us is to send us your locations of streets that were constructed or reconstructed since 1971. It's not um, the construction of an apartment building on a block you know, on the on the private property next to the public right-of-way. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about changes to the right-of-way itself, uh, construction of a street, paving of a street, um, uh, maybe if sidewalks weren't put in even though they paved the street, this kind of thing. Um, so those are the kinds of examples. That process of identifying where the noncompliance has been and the legal wrangling over – um, clarifying where the boundaries are is going to take a long time. So there's going to be a lot of hurry up and wait on this, um, a lot of behind-the-scenes work. And at certain points, there will be milestones. And when those milestones happen, because this is a public interest case, uh, you'll hear about them. Bike Portland listeners and readers will hear about them. And um, hopefully there will be some uh, some decisions to make as those happen. Okay, is there anything about about the lawsuit that you want folks to know about at this point that we haven't talked about? I think it's going to be an opportunity for uh, for the city of Portland to better understand its obligations. I think it's an opportunity to improve a number of roadways in our city that need it uh, and to get clarity going forward about what the city's obligations are. Uh, I think that um, there are a lot of people who are doing really good work within the Portland Bureau of Transportation, in the advocacy, advocacy community, in the neighborhoods, uh, uh, in East Portland, all around the city. There are lots of people who want to see safe streets. They want to see people able to ride to school with their kids and have their kids walking and have elders walking safely. And we need to turn around the numbers. We have far, far too many crashes and fatalities on our streets and those numbers going up instead of down show us that we're not doing it right. So I hope that what we are doing, what Bike Loud is doing in this lawsuit will focus more attention on those issues and that we will come out of this a better city. Uh, Scott, thanks for coming in and, and sharing your insights about this. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. That was organ lawyer Scott Kotcher of Forum Law Group, who's representing Bike Loud PDX in a lawsuit against the city of Portland. Be sure to check our show notes for links and resources mentioned in this episode. 
the Bike Portland podcast is a production of Pedal Town Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org slash support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe at bikeportland.org slash podcast. Our music for this episode was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Elitu, the podcast maker. Find your own free music podcast over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets. Bye.